CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Marioara Rastas. On the 13th of January 2008, Gardi issued an appeal to the public about a missing 18-year-old girl, Marioara Rastas. Marioara was a Roma girl living with her family in Donabate. She was the fifth eldest of the Rastas' 15 children. She'd never gone to school, rather she'd helped her mother take care of the younger kids in the house. Their derelict home in Donabate was crowded. They shared it with other families and it was without electricity, heat or running water. The girl's mother, Marioara Sr., had developed a frequent racking cough, which she would have even years later. Still, the wet Irish winter was somewhat better than the freezing snow they would have experienced in their native Romania. Marioara had last been seen in Dublin city centre, on Lombard Street East a week before, on Sunday the 6th of January. The family had gone out that sunny Sunday morning to beg together, as their father had been unable to get work. Marioara's brother, 13-year-old Dimitru Jr., saw her getting into a car on the corner of the road where it met Pierce Street, just outside a Bank of Ireland branch. Dimitru had seen a silver Ford Mondeo car pull up with a dark-haired man in it. The boy had gone over to see what was going on when Marioara got into the car, and the driver had given him 10 euros. Dimitru was under the impression that his sister was being taken to McDonald's. But she didn't arrive home. Marioara's family were concerned right away. Marioara's father, Dimitru Sr., had shown Marioara's ID card to the Gardi, but they thought he was asking if the girl had been arrested. The photograph on the card would become familiar across Ireland in the coming months. It was the only picture of Marioara ever taken. None of the family spoke any English, and eventually they left the Garda station without having made a report. No one else at the squat they were staying in spoke any English either, 
So Mario Ara's dad rang home to Romania a number of times to see if she had made any contact there. There was one mobile phone there shared between an extended family and used for emergencies. All of the kids had learnt off the number. On Tuesday the 8th, Dimitru was told his daughter had in fact called. She'd spoken to another brother who relayed to their father that Mario Ara was not being allowed to leave a house and she'd been violated while there. She had tried to spell out a road sign that she had seen out the window of a house she was being held in, but the line had suddenly gone dead. Mario Ara's parents began looking in earnest for someone who spoke English, and they were told to go to the forecourts in the city centre. There would be translators there for people involved in criminal cases. Surely someone there would speak Romanian and English. The next morning, this was what Mariuara's father had done, eventually tracking someone down and telling them what had happened to Mariuara. Dimitru Rostos was brought to the Bridewell Garda station, and there he made a report that Mariuara was missing. Mariuara had only arrived in Ireland three weeks prior to join her parents and some of her siblings, who had taken up residence here. The family had arrived on tourist visas and had no source of income bar what they received from begging. Their tourist status meant they didn't qualify for the receipt of social welfare. Mariuara had joined her parents in Ireland in December of 2007, after telling them that she'd been assaulted in her hometown of Timisoara. They wanted her with them to recuperate. Gardi were able to verify that Mariuara had made a call to her brother in Romania in the previous days, but beyond that, they had very little to go on. And so, on the 13th of January, the Gardi had issued her description, saying Mariuara had last been seen wearing jeans, white runners, a long black coat, and a pink scarf. The 18-year-old had long black hair. Gardi were unable to make any further progress with the case, and so a reconstruction of her last known movements was shown on Crime Call in April. Two tips were received on foot of this broadcast, one in June and another in September. Both said that Mariuara had been held in a house in the city centre where she had been raped before being killed. The first call from a man did not provide any information on where the house was, but the second call from a woman did. Gardi went to the address in Brabazon Street in the Coombe and discovered that there had been a fire in the house in recent months, and it was burnt out. Despite extensive damage from the fire, Gardi had carried out a detailed examination of the rented home. They discovered seven bullet holes in the walls and furniture in the house, and a jacket which had traces of blood on it. The blood was not a match for Mariuara's. Ten months after Mariuara's disappearance, in late November 2008, Three people were arrested by Gardi in relation to Mariuara's disappearance. Two women aged 30 and 56 and a 29-year-old man were questioned in three separate Garda stations in the city centre, Kevin Street, Harcourt Terrace and Pier Street. The women were held on suspicion of withholding information, while the man was held on suspicion of possession of a firearm. One of the women was released without charge on the 30th of November while a second man was brought in for questioning on the same day. 
Newspapers reported that one of the men arrested was considered the prime suspect in the case, with the others who were questioned identified as members of his extended family. Tom Brady wrote in the Irish Independent that Gardy believed that Mariwara had been somehow introduced to a well-known Dublin criminal from the south side of the city who dealt in drugs and guns. They believed Mariwara had gone with this man in January on the promise of food and shelter, but this apparent acquaintance of hers had instead asked her to become a sex worker and Mariwara had been killed when she refused. Mr. Brady also reported that on Saturday, the 29th of November, members of the Garda Underwater Unit searched a stretch of the Grand Canal on the south inner city near the Denor Road area in the hopes of finding a murder weapon. Unfortunately, there were no results from this search. Gardy renewed their appeal to the public for information in the case, and they asked especially for the two people who had made anonymous calls to them to get back in touch. By December 2nd, the first three people who had been arrested were released without charge, while a fourth person, a man, was still being questioned. He was released just before noon that day. Garda sources told the press that they were planning a series of searches in relation to the case. But there was little left to go on in the case. In August of 2009, Gurdy renewed their appeal for information about Mariuara's disappearance and her suspected killing, and Crime Stoppers launched an appeal the following month. This appeal focused on the Silver Mondeo, which Dimitru had seen his sister getting into. The public were told that it was a 2007 model with registration plates from County Louth, and anyone with information which helped the investigation could receive a cash reward for their tip. In the meantime, however, the Rostas family returned to Romania. In December of 2011, Tom Brady, writing for the Irish Independent, reported that the main suspect in the case had made threats against a Sunday World reporter, Mick McCaffrey, after an article was published in that paper, which the suspect took exception to. Gardy were treating the threat seriously, and Mr. McCaffrey and his family had moved from their home. It was understood that the man had offered an associate 20,000 euros to carry out the threats, as the suspect was in jail at the time, awaiting trial on an aggravated burglary charge, and that a Garda detective based in Dublin City had also been threatened. The man was also suspected of involvement in the shooting death of a 19-year-old in the Black Horse Inn pub in Inchicore in 2010. The following January, on the 11th, Gardy began a search operation in the woods of the Wicklow Mountains after receiving a tip in the case. There had been rumours that this was where Mariuara's body had been dumped after her death. The search focused on an area in and around the Kapura estate, a popular area for hiking and recreation which is sparsely populated and covered with trees and boggy land. The search of the West Wicklow Mountains continued the next day. The Garda Technical Bureau were brought in and a police helicopter was also employed in the course of the search. It continued throughout the following weekend, through the 19th of January. The focus was on a particular piece of land owned by Quilcha, the Irish forestry company. Gurdy were also conducting various digs throughout the area. 
The Irish Times reported that a particular area of interest was located down a forest track on a rising hillside. This episode is sponsored in part by our best buds, Manscaped. Father's Day is just around the corner and nothing says I love you dad more than a world-class trimmer for his balls. Manscaped's performance package offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels and you can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. Imagine surprising your special someone with the best men's grooming package that says your balls will thank you on the box. And if you're buying for your actual dad, your mom will thank you too. You know what I love? Dad bods. You know what I don't love? Hairy noses or ears. Manscaped's Weed Whacker will sort all those stray hairs out though. It's waterproof and uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. Those specs sound so manly. The performance package also includes the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. And because of their skin-safe technology, this is the best trimmer on the market for <coughs> your back, sack, and crack. And don't forget Manscaped's Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner to maximize your ball beautifying routine. Right now, when you buy Manscaped's Performance Package, you receive their two free gifts, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. Get your dad or your daddy a gift you know they will use. Remember, there's 20% off plus free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code MENS. Manscaped, your balls will thank you. This episode is also sponsored in part by Beer52. <sighs> grab a chair, grab a beer. Oh wait, wrong podcast. But definitely right beer delivery club. You guys know what a fan I am of things delivered right to your front door. And what a time to be alive when you can get a selection of amazing craft beers sent to you each month. Beer 52 is the world's largest beer club. There are 170,000 active members and each month those lucky souls receive a case of beer all selected around different themes. And if you're not into dark beers, you can choose the light option to make sure you get to try each one. But that's not all. Your case of beer from Beer 52 also comes with an awesome magazine and a tasty snack. Right now, Beer 52 is offering my listeners a free case of eight craft beers for the price of postage. All you have to do is go to beer52.com forward slash men's. That's the numbers 52 and they will send you beer to your house for £5.95. You can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. And let's not forget that Father's Day is right around the corner. It's kind of a no-brainer, am I right? So head to beer52.com slash men's. That's beer52.com forward slash M-E-N-S to get a case of eight craft beers for less than six pounds. What are you waiting for? That's beer52.com forward slash men's. Please drink responsibly.
On the 23rd of January, after nearly two weeks of searching, news broke that a bag containing bones had been found on the land five kilometres from the village of Manor Kilbride, near the Sally Gap. The plastic bag had been buried in a grave a few feet deep and was discovered at around 11am. Ed Carty reported that the Gardaí had received more definite information in the days before the discovery, which had narrowed down the search area even further. A forensic examination of the site around the bag was begun, led by Deputy State Pathologist Dr Khalid Jabbar, who was able to confirm that the remains were human. The body was then removed from the site in a hearse, and a post-mortem was to be carried out that evening at Tala Hospital. Gardi made contact with Mariwara's family in Romania and began making arrangements for them to return to Ireland before Mariwara's body was repatriated, though formal identification was delayed as this was done via DNA. Mariwara's teeth had been removed. The post-mortem concluded that Mariwara's death had been caused when she was shot multiple times in the head. Chief Superintendent Michael O'Sullivan said that this was a most heinous crime and that a number of the investigating officers were shocked when Mariwara's body was discovered. He continued, quote, I can say Mariwara suffered an appalling death that is incomprehensible in a civilised society, end quote. Investigators believed that Mariwara was held for a period of time before her death, possibly in the house in the Coombe. Brian Hutton revealed in the Irish Independent on the 26th of January that Gardaí had seized a car in relation to the case some months before and that it was still in Garda possession. Gardaí appealed again for anyone with information on the case to come forward and again specifically requested the two anonymous callers to make contact with them. The case was officially upgraded from that of a missing person to a murder inquiry. On Sunday the 29th of January, Mariwara's parents, Dimitru and Mariwara, and two of her brothers arrived back in Ireland. They chose to view Mariwara's body in order to say their final goodbyes to her and were brought to a funeral home to do so. On the 10th of February, dozens of people gathered outside Pierce Street Garda Station at a candlelit vigil in Mariwara's memory. A two-minute silence was observed. A senior Garda told the press that there was still a lot of work to be done before a file could be sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions, but that the investigation had entered its final phase. Mariowara's funeral took place the same day. The two Gardi who had accompanied her body back home also attended the funeral. There was thick snow on the ground in the small town where the Rastas lived. Within that town, the Rostas lived in an area known locally as a gypsy ghetto, with 200 members of the Roma community living there. The Rostas' home was described as dilapidated. Her family placed some of her favourite things into the coffin with her, starkly underlying how little they had. A t-shirt, a plastic watch, a pair of Nike trainers. Mariowara's devastated mother told a reporter for the Irish Independent, quote, I kept up hope that my daughter was alive, but after a while I realised she was dead somewhere. I just knew. I think it's a mother's intuition. I started to pray to God and asked him for her body to be found so that she could be brought back home. 
Her father said, quote, I put my faith in justice and I believe justice will be served. All my hopes lie in the hands of the Irish police. Anger won't bring her back, end quote. Irish reporter Marco Regan had also travelled to Romania. He overheard a Romanian official wonder at all this bother that had been gone to over a Roma girl. The sentiment had been echoed back in Ireland where there was negative comment from the public about people from the Roma community moving to the country. On Friday the 23rd of March 2012, a man was taken from prison custody and questioned for a second time in relation to Mario Ara's death. He was released back into prison on Sunday. Gardie said that a file for the DPP was being prepared on the matter. Then, on the afternoon of April 5th, a 33-year-old man was arrested and taken to Pier Street Garda Station. He was named as Alan Wilson from New Street Gardens in the South Inner City. That evening, Wilson appeared before a special sitting of the Dublin District Court after being formally charged with Mariuara's murder. The court heard that in response to this charge and caution, Wilson had said, quote, I didn't do this. His solicitor, Dunham Malloy, said no application could be made in relation to bail, but free legal aid was applied for and granted. On August 9th, Wilson was back in court where a state solicitor applied to Judge John Lindsay for more time to serve the book of evidence. The solicitor told the court that the case had been given priority by the DPP and that 300 statements had been taken and 192 interviews had been conducted in the case. The office of the DPP had just received an outstanding report and the court was told it was expected that directions would be given in the case in the following days. Mr. Malloy, for the defendant, said that it seemed to him that the DPP had jumped into making the decision to arrest and said that the guard of file should have been prepared by this stage, given that the case dated back four years. He wanted a time frame for when the book of evidence was likely to be delivered. The prosecution asked for four weeks, but Judge Lindsay granted two and told the state solicitor, quote, time is running, something needs to happen, end quote. The book was served on Alan Wilson on the 31st of August, and he was sent forward for trial. After the brief hearing at the court in Cloverhill Prison as Wilson got up to leave, his mother blew him a kiss from her seat in the body of the court. On Wednesday the 18th of June 2014, a jury of 10 men and two women were sworn in for Alan Wilson's trial. A week later, the trial opened before Mr. Justice Patrick McCarthy. The opening statement for the prosecution was given by Sean Gillan, senior counsel, who said that it was the state's case that Mr. Wilson had picked Marioara up on Pierce Street and sometime later brought the teenager to his sister's house in the Coombe. The court would hear from a witness who had seen Marioara's body in the house and who had heard statements indicating that the defendant was responsible for her death. The witness had then assisted in the disposal of Marioara's body. The next day, Dr. Khalid Jabbar gave evidence of his involvement in the investigation. Dr. Jabbar told the court that he had travelled out to a woodland area in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains in January of 2012. He was shown a shallow grave about two feet deep, with the body lying in it, in the fetal position. The body was wrapped in dark grey plastic, like bin liners, and was secured with duct tape. Dr. Jabbar examined the body more thoroughly in Tala Hospital. 
a pillowcase had been placed over Marioara's head, and he found that her body was also wrapped in a bedsheet. Marioara was wearing only her underwear, and she had no jewellery or a watch. Dr. Jabbar found evidence of physical violence during the examination and told the court that Marioara had died from four gunshot wounds to her head. He'd recovered metal fragments during the post-mortem and passed these on to Garda Ballistics. On the third day of the trial, the jury were shown a photograph of a house in Brabazon Street, just outside Dublin city centre, where Maxine Wilson, the defendant's sister, had lived. The picture showed a bullet hole in the burnt and smoke-damaged living room wall, which the prosecution said was the room directly below the one Mariwara Rastas was held before her death. A bullet had been recovered from the hole and a photograph of this, taken by Detective Garda Mairead Crowley of the Technical Bureau, was also shown to the court. During cross-examination, senior counsel for the defence, Michael O'Higgins, said that the photo the court had been shown suggested only that a bullet had been shot into the wall of the living room on the second floor, which was not the room on the third floor that the state contended Marioara had been held and killed in. The detective Garda agreed that this was the case. The bullets had been shot directly into the wall and had not been responsible for Marioara's death. The court also heard from Jonathan Lindsay, who had been driving in the area of Pier Street and Lombard Street on the afternoon Marioara went missing. He'd seen a girl with dark hair begging in traffic. Mr Lindsay said he'd noticed the girl in the same place a few weeks earlier. He'd identified this girl as Marioara when shown her picture by Gardi a week after the sighting. Mr. Lindsay said he did not see the, quote, Romanian-looking girl get into a car or talk to anyone. Then the court heard from Marioara's father, Dimitru Rostas, who spoke through an interpreter. Mr. Rostas told the court that he had last seen his daughter at around 2pm on the 6th of January in Dublin city centre when he left her begging at the junction of Lombard Street and Pierce Street as he left to get food. When Mr. Rostas got back, Marioara was gone, and he waited there for three hours for her, but she never came back. When night fell, he went to the nearby Garda station for help, but no one there understood him, so he went back to Donabate in the hopes that Marioara was there, but she wasn't. Mr. Rostas had returned to report Marioara missing after making contact with an older son in Romania and tracking down an interpreter. He'd brought Marioara's birth certificate with him and had given a description of her clothing to police. After this, Detective Garda Brian Barry described the discovery of Marioara's body. Gardi had found a piece of timberboard lying in the woodland with a number of six-foot lengths of scaffolding over it. Underneath the wood there was disturbed earth, measuring five foot by three foot. A digging machine was brought in to excavate the area and Detective Garda Barry had stopped the digging when he noticed black plastic had been uncovered in the hole. Manual digging at the site was begun, using small shovels, trowels and hands to expose the outline of the deceased covered in the black plastic. Then a number of bullet fragments that had been retrieved during post-mortem were shown to the court. Detective Garda Barry said that they were consistent with having been fired from a 22 caliber firearm. O'Higgins, for the defence, put it to the detective that the bullet fragments the court had been shown had nothing to do with those found in the house in the coombe. 
Detective Barry said that the bullets had been examined and compared with those found in Brabazon Street, and the results had been inconclusive. Detective Garda Fionon Lynch gave evidence next. He had assisted in the removal of Marioara's body to Tala Hospital. The plastic bags and the duct tape had been examined for finger or palm prints, but none were found. Garda Daniel McCarthy had examined the house in the Coombe immediately after the fire there on the 29th of February 2008. He told the court that there were a few different seats of the fire at different levels in the house, indicating different origins. That it was likely an accelerant had been used and a burnt petrol canister had been found on the top floor of the house. The smell of petrol fumes were still present in the house at the time of the examination. The property had been rented by the health service, the HSC, on behalf of Ms. Maxine Wilson, the defendant's sister, and her partner, Mr. Fergus O'Hanlon, but there were few personal effects left in the place when it had caught fire. Most of what was left there was the original furniture from the house. The decision to re-examine the house was taken in October of 2008 by Detective Inspector Michael Cryan. The owner of the Brabazon Street home, Oliver Toner, testified that before Maxine and O'Hanlon had taken up residence in the house, there had been no lock on the upstairs bedroom door, nor had there been any bullet holes in the walls. The following week, Dimitru, Marioara's brother, took to the stand. He described seeing his sister getting into a silver Mondeo and the man behind the wheel telling him he was taking Marioara to McDonald's to get food. The driver had then put a tenor out of the window and dropped it as he drove off. The note fell to the ground and Dimitru had picked it up. Just after Marioara's disappearance, he had given a description of the man driving the silver car, but when on the stand after six years, he told the court he could not remember what the man had looked like. Dimitru's statement from back in 2008 described the driver of the car as slim with pale skin and neat, tightly cut black hair with a part to one side. Dimitru told the police that the man had, quote, small black eyes and what the boy had called mushrooms or spots on his left cheek. He had been wearing a black tracksuit with green stripes. Back in 2008, the then 13-year-old had also viewed an identification parade, but he wasn't sure that the man from the car had been in it, although one, he said, had similar skin. On the stand, Dimitru said he could not say if a photo fit he was shown looked like the man he'd seen either. Another of Marioara's brothers, Alexandru, gave evidence that he had spoken with Marioara on the 7th of January in Romania. His cousin Radu had answered the phone and ran across the road to where Alexandru lived, passing the handset over. Marioara was crying and told him she was out of town and needed their father to come and get her. She said she could see a little sign out the window and tried to spell it out for him, but the line suddenly went dead. On cross, Alexandru denied that he had told Romanian police that Marioara had been taken by two men or that he had later said Marioara told him she had 50 cent to talk on the phone, or that she'd been dropped 200 kilometres away from Dublin by a boy. 
Mr. O'Higgins for the defense said both of these accounts were in statements made by Alexandru in relation to his sister's disappearance. The court then adjourned for legal argument to be heard. It had been expected that the jury would return three days later, on Thursday the 3rd of July. However, when Thursday arrived, the jury was told that the trial proper would resume the following Tuesday, the 8th. But on Thursday the 17th, evidence in the case had still not resumed. Mr. Justice McCarthy apologised to the jury for the significant delays in the trial, saying that there had been complex legal issues that needed to be resolved, and he asked that they return the next day. When open court resumed that Friday, Fergus O'Hanlon took the stand. He described himself as a former friend of the accused. O'Hanlon was the partner of Wilson's sister at the time of Marioara's death and they had lived together in Brabazon Street. O'Hanlon said that on the morning of the 8th of January he'd been at Kevin Street Post Office to collect his disability payment when he got a phone call from Maxine telling him to come home. Maxine was nervous and shaking when he got back to the house. Then Alan Wilson came downstairs with a rifle in his hand and had asked O'Hanlon to come with him as he had something to show the witness. The witness then said that Alan Wilson led him upstairs to the third floor bedroom where he was shown the body of Marioara Rostas lying on the floor. O'Hanlon recalled that Wilson had said the girl had been shot because she witnessed her brother being killed. Marioara's body was lying in the centre of the room on her back. O'Hanlon said, quote, It was like she was wide awake, staring at the ceiling. She had long hair and a hole in her forehead. I only saw one hole in her forehead and blood running down her nose, end quote. According to Fergus, the two men had then gone back downstairs where Mr. Wilson had taken the gun apart. Then Wilson left and Maxine went a short while after. When alone in the house, O'Hanlon had gone back upstairs and checked Marioara for life signs by taking her pulse, but there was nothing. He'd gone and gotten sick in the toilet. Mr. O'Hanlon told the court that he'd considered calling 999 and getting the guards and an ambulance, but he didn't know what was going on and felt there was nothing he could do. O'Hanlon said, quote, I didn't know what way it would look, end quote. Then the defendant came back to the house with a large green bag. O'Hanlon told the court that Wilson had a gun cocked at that point and told O'Hanlon to follow him upstairs and to bring the green bag. Fergus told the court that he had gone to the toilet again and when he came back to the bedroom, Wilson had placed a pillowcase over Marioara's head and had covered the rest of her body with a sheet. Wilson had brought pairs of gloves, bleach, ammonia, plastic and duct tape with him in the green bag. O'Hanlon said he saw a receipt that he thought looked like it had come from Woody's DIY store. The defendant had then asked Mr. O'Hanlon to take off Marioara's runners and jeans while Wilson took off her sweater, leaving the girl only in her underwear. Marioara's body was then wrapped in the plastic by the two men, put into the green bag and they drove to the Dublin mountains. The witness told the court that Wilson had looked around for a pre-dug hole, which he called a bunker, but when Wilson couldn't locate it, they both dug out a small hole. Then they put Marioara's wrapped body into it, and O'Hanlon described how Wilson had then stood on the body, saying, quote, Alan stood on her, 
dancing on her, end quote. In the days immediately after the burial of Mariuara's body, O'Hanlon said he had cleaned the bedroom in Brabazon Street, allegedly following Wilson's instructions. He got rid of the bed and the carpet and washed the floors and walls with bleach. Michael O'Higgins then cross-examined the witness, telling the jury that most of his questions would relate to establishing the level of credibility of Mr. O'Hanlon. The witness had said he was out collecting his social welfare payment on the 8th of January, the day he'd been shown Mariuara Rosta's body. But Gardi had made inquiries and learned that Mr. O'Hanlon had not in fact collected his payment that day. On the stand, Mr. O'Hanlon explained that when he'd taken the phone call asking him to come home, he'd just left the post office without collecting the payment. It was pointed out that the description of the receipt O'Hanlon had seen did not match the kind that came from the hardware shop he had named. O'Hanlon had also refused to take part in an identification parade, telling the court he'd feared that he would be wrongly recognised. It was suggested that the witness had actually refused to take part because he bore a resemblance to the photo fit that had been created, and this was because he was the one who had been driving the silver car on the day Mariuara went missing. O'Hanlon denied this. The defence also brought up Fergus O'Hanlon's personal history. There was an incident where his ex-partner's ribs had been broken. O'Hanlon accepted that she had been hurt, but said he wasn't responsible for her injuries, suggesting that she must have fallen against something resulting in the damage to her ribs. The woman involved alleged that O'Hanlon had tried to strangle her, but the witness said she was exaggerating. O'Hanlon did admit, however, to threatening to shoot the woman's brother. O'Hanlon also denied having shot two hospital security guards after threatening them and using racial slurs two days before the shooting incident. The witness said that he had no problems with, quote, dark-skinned people, Muslims or non-nationals, end quote. Fergus told the court it was a coincidence that he had been staying in a house in Talla the night before the fire at Brabazon Street and that he had arranged a place to move into through a friend immediately after the fire. The witness also said that he'd never shot a bullet from a gun and denied that the house in the coombe had been used as a brothel. Mr O'Hanlon did however admit to describing the house to Gardee as a shooting gallery and acknowledged that another girl had died in the house when she overdosed. There were also a number of questions for the witness regarding the silver Ford car. Mr O'Hanlon said that the Mondeo had been given to him by the accused sometime around April of 2008. He asserted that he had not driven the car to a methadone clinic at Trinity Court near Lombard Street on January 8th. It also emerged that O'Hanlon had been given immunity by the DPP in relation to this case, but on the stand, the witness said he couldn't recall whether he had asked for immunity or not. O'Hanlon had said to Mr O'Higgins, quote, You can make all this up to discredit me, but I was there and you weren't, end quote. On Monday the 21st of July, O'Hanlon was still on the stand. The witness asserted that he had nothing to gain by giving evidence in this case or cooperating with the Gardee, pointing out that he had admitted that he had been involved in the disposal of Mariuara's body and that he'd told Gardee where to find her. 
O'Hanlon asked why he would give Gardy this information if he was more involved in Marioara's death than he had said he was, or if he had killed Marioara. O'Hanlon said he had nothing to gain and everything to lose from telling the truth, and that he was now in witness protection and was unable to see his kids because of his cooperation with police. But there were further questions for the witness regarding his participation in the witness protection program. He denied threatening to discredit the program or sell information about it to criminals, or that he was a, quote, controlling bully. But O'Hanlon conceded that he had, quote unquote, trashed three apartments that had been provided to him through witness protection. He had broken a TV and a door and punched holes into a wall. But O'Hanlon said these incidents had come about due to the stress of being in the program, as he was unable to see friends or family or take up employment. Reports from the service were read to the court by Mr. O'Higgins, which said that O'Hanlon was difficult to manage and that he had told a number of people he was in witness protection because he was an attention seeker. Mr. O'Hanlon denied the accusation that he hated Mr. Wilson and insisted he did not recall having said during a phone conversation, which was recorded, quote, I have waited four years to fuck him over, end quote. The court heard that Fergus O'Hanlon had a number of previous convictions, including the burglary of a Supermax restaurant and crashing a car while drink driving. The court was informed that he was in the process of serving out those sentences at the time. The following day, Superintendent J.J. Keane was called to the stand to provide more details about the immunity from prosecution that Fergus O'Hanlon had been granted. The superintendent had met with a solicitor acting on behalf of Mr. O'Hanlon in December of 2011 and subsequently interviewed Fergus O'Hanlon himself. Superintendent Keane told the court that he had not brought up the issue of immunity, nor did he recall O'Hanlon broaching the subject, saying, quote, He was looking for no deals whatsoever. No deals were on offer. I never heard the word immunity mentioned. End quote. However, Mr. O'Higgins for the defence showed the superintendent a note which was taken by O'Hanlon's solicitor, which set out that her client had asked for immunity if he showed them where Marioara's body was, and if he made a statement about Alan Wilson. Superintendent Keane simply responded that immunity had not come up in his conversations with the witness. Then a retired detective superintendent, Mr. Gabriel O'Gara, took the stand. He said that he was not sure why it was that the DPP had waited to disclose O'Hanlon's immunity from prosecution until the trial had started, and he was not aware of any supposedly tactical reason why this might be done. The former detective superintendent also told the court that he had appeared at a district court proceeding where O'Hanlon was the defendant. He had told the judge in that court that O'Hanlon was assisting Gardee with an investigation, and the trial judge in that instance had handed down a suspended sentence for the offence in question. On the morning of the 24th of July, Inspector Michael Cryan gave evidence that in late November 2008, Mr. Wilson had been arrested on suspicion of murder and was re-arrested in March 2012 after new evidence had been discovered in the investigation. A statement made by Garda Tom Canavan was read into the court, 
after the guards had stopped Alan Wilson while he was driving in the bus lane at Bachelor's Walk on the 9th of February 2008 in a silver Ford Mondeo. A fixed charge penalty was issued and the fine was paid. After this, a Garda from the Witness Protection Programme recounted how he had met with the witness Fergus O'Hanlon in June of 2013. He was not named in court due to the sensitivity of his position in the programme. When he met with O'Hanlon, Alan Wilson's trial was set to begin in November of 2013, and the Garda told the court that O'Hanlon wanted to talk to him about what his circumstances were going to be after the trial. The officer told O'Hanlon that he would be offered a like-for-like situation after the trial. As the witness was on social welfare and living in social housing, he would be placed in the same situation after the trial. The court was told that Mr O'Hanlon had been calm, polite and in a reasonably good mood on the various occasions when he met with this Garda. The officer and Fergus O'Hanlon had met a few times and he said they'd never had cross words or an argument in their interactions. Notes had been taken of the meeting in June which stated that O'Hanlon had understood the terms of the Witness Protection Programme and that O'Hanlon had said his giving evidence was not about getting anything, rather he was just trying to do the right thing. Finally, solicitor Bridget Ruse, who had been asked by Gardee to advise Fergus O'Hanlon in January of 2012, took the stand. O'Hanlon had waived privilege in relation to her dealings with him. A memo was read to the court which recorded that Ms. Rouse had heard her client ask Gardee if he could be granted immunity if he made a statement, but that officers had responded that they were not in a position to offer this and it would be a matter for the DPP to consider after any such statement was made. When cross-examined, the solicitor said she had spoken directly with her client about this conversation and Ms. Rouse had made it very clear to O'Hanlon that no immunity deal was on offer and that if it were to be considered, it would be after any statement was made. On the 30th of July, the court heard closing statements. Sean Galan, senior counsel for the prosecution, told the court that in this case, given what had happened, witnesses to the crime were not going to be altar boys. O'Hanlon was not the perfect witness, but when he spoke to the guardee, he had already gotten away with his part in the crime, and by speaking out, Fergus O'Hanlon had put himself at risk of prosecution. Michael O'Higgins, for the defence, said that the jury had heard, quote, a masterclass in perjury in the form of O'Hanlon's testimony, and the lawyer pointed out that the state's star witness had only spoken out about Mario Ara's death when he was being questioned in relation to another crime. This had occurred in late 2011 when O'Hanlon was interviewed in relation to threats to murder a journalist. He'd asked Gardy to speak off-camera in the course of an interview in relation to this crime and he'd broached the subject of doing a deal with Gardy. O'Higgins asserted that Fergus O'Hanlon's accusations had been self-serving and that O'Hanlon was a wholly unreliable witness. Mr Justice Patrick McCarthy then began his charge to the jury. He warned them that O'Hanlon was an accomplice in the crime and therefore his evidence must be weighed carefully. It would also be dangerous to convict on the basis of uncorroborated evidence, the judge said. 
The following day, on the 31st of July, after deliberating for just under three hours, the jury of ten men and two women returned with their verdict. They found Alan Wilson not guilty of the murder of Mario Ararostas. The jury evidently felt unable to rely on the evidence given by O'Hanlon during the trial. Wilson left the court without speaking, but was still taken away in a prison van as he was serving a seven-year sentence after being convicted for attacking a man with a meat cleaver while breaking into his home. Mariuara's family did not react when the verdict was read. They spoke with an interpreter outside the court after the proceedings had come to a close. Her father, Dimitru, said, quote, There is a sadness, a pain deep down in our souls that we cannot get rid of. We will never forget. After the conclusion of Alan Wilson's trial, it emerged that Fergus O'Hanlon had also received immunity in another case. He had received a call from an inmate at Cloverhill Prison in July of 2011, which ordered him to murder journalist Mick McCaffrey and a guarded detective. The caller said Fergus would get €30,000 for each murder. O'Hanlon was arrested in relation to this in November of 2011 and was confronted with wiretap evidence. It was during this period of detention that O'Hanlon began making a deal, not only for immunity in return for providing information in relation to Mariuara's murder, but also in relation to the conspiracy to murder charges that followed on from this phone conversation. His immunity in relation to Mariuara's case was granted just two days into the trial. Maeve Sheehan from the Irish Independent also reported that mobile phone evidence gathered during the course of the investigation into Mariuara's death was not presented to the jury as had been planned. There were records from an Irish mobile number which had been used to call Mariuara's brother on the 7th of January. The same number was used to call relatives of Alan Wilson, the accused in the case, around the same time. The records, including location data, and testimony from eight expert witnesses had been in the book of evidence and had been planned to be put before the jury. These records suggested that Mariuara had been in Clontarf when the call to her brother in Romania was placed, as the mobile phone had pinged off a mast in the suburb at the time. Gardi suspected that Mariuara might have been held for some time in an apartment in the seaside village, which had suffered a fire later that year after her death. Before this, on the afternoon of Sunday the 6th, the phone had been somewhere in the area of Cumberland House in Dublin city centre, near to Lombard Street, where Mario Arra was last seen. But sources told the paper that this material was not presented at trial because of a recent ruling of the European Court of Justice, which decided that a European directive from 2006 requiring phone and internet providers to keep customers' records for two years had been invalid, as it was a breach of the right to privacy. In December of 2014, Alan Wilson brought an appeal against his conviction and sentencing in relation to the Blanchardstown incident from 2009. At the same time, his legal team were moving an application for him to be granted bail, pending the decision of the appeal court. 
Gardi, however, were concerned that a large-scale Garda protection operation would have to be mounted if Wilson was released. They feared that Wilson might seek revenge on people who had given statements in relation to Mario Ara's murder. This was based on previous harassment and threats against some people who were thought to be cooperating with that Garda investigation had been subject to by Wilson's associates before the trial, which, according to Ken Foy, writing for the Irish Independent, involved a number of non-fatal shooting incidents. It was also reported that a number of witnesses who had been involved in the previous trial for the attack in Blanchardstown had also been intimidated. The following year, in September of 2015, Alan Wilson's 63-year-old mother died of a heart attack in her home in New Street Gardens. Mary Wilson had been arrested herself on three occasions by Gardy in relation to Mario Ara's death and had been questioned in relation to the conspiracy to murder journalist Mick McCaffrey and the Garda detective. She had also been arrested in April of 2012 after allegedly threatening a witness in the Mario Ara case. During her arrest, Mrs. Wilson had been caught trying to flush a piece of paper down the toilet. Gardy retrieved it, however, and discovered it was a note containing instructions and a map detailing a plot to kill a solicitor that Gardy believed Wilson and associates thought had cooperated with the police. It was decided, however, that no charges would be brought against her in relation to this. Alan Wilson was granted a brief visit to view his mother's body in the funeral home, but he was not allowed out of jail to attend her funeral. A huge Garda presence was apparent in Anger Street in Dublin City when Wilson, still cuffed to a prison officer, made the visit on the 16th of September. Wilson was out of prison for a total of just two hours. In November of 2015, Alan Wilson's appeal was heard, along with that of his co-accused, David Crowley. Both had pleaded not guilty in the original trial for trespass while committing assault causing harm. This related to the incident in Blanchardstown in June of 2009, where the two men had arrived at a home, entered it and struggled with a man inside. Apparently, the attack had been prompted over an argument about a woman. The occupants of the house were threatened with a meat cleaver and the gun had been shot into the air. Thankfully, no one was injured and the two men had fled the scene. Counsel for Alan Wilson said that until that point, his client had never been in prison before and had only one previous conviction, which was in the district court for the possession of a screwdriver. Both men's appeals of their convictions were refused. However, because Wilson had been in custody awaiting trial for murder, while he was technically out on bail awaiting trial for the meat cleaver incident, the court decided to reduce his sentence to take that time served into account. His bail for that time on that charge still existed, despite the more serious charge running alongside it. A year was shaved from his sentence. In July 2017, Alan Wilson had his appeal heard before the Supreme Court. His barrister argued that, when interviewed, he had been held in relation to an unlawful discharge of a shotgun and that therefore any adverse inferences Gardy had drawn from that interview had not applied to the offence he was eventually charged with, trespass. The Supreme Court ruled, quote, The inferences caution must be related to the same offence as is involved in the proceedings ultimately brought, and thus the same offence as that with which the accused is charged, end quote. 
Wilson's conviction for the Blanchardstown incident was therefore quashed, and the DPP chose not to retry him, as his six-year term was all but completed at that stage. Alan Wilson was out. In November of 2017, Alan Wilson and three other men appeared in the district court charged with conspiracy to murder after Gardee had discovered a plan to kill another man from the north inner city. All of the men were remanded in custody. The following April, Alan Wilson and another man were charged in connection with an alleged plot to kill a person or persons unknown in a pub on Talbot Street in September of 2015. Their defence lawyers objected to the court, saying that the fresh charges were an abuse of process, but the district court judge, Victor Blake, would not strike out the existing cases. Wilson's lawyer, Aoife O'Halloran, said she believed that the new charges were simply a move to extend the period that the state had in which to deliver the book of evidence. Lawyers for the other two men also objected to further adjournments to allow the state more time to prepare the books of evidence in the case. The charges against these two men were marked preemptory, however, meaning that if the book was not delivered at the next court date, the charges could be struck out then. None of the cases were struck out, though, and the state was given more time to serve the book. On July 30th, 2018, one of the men, 23-year-old Luke Wilson, Alan Wilson's nephew, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to murder, as well as an additional charge of unlawful possession of a handgun in the Special Criminal Court. He received an 11-year sentence for the firearm charge and a six-year sentence to run concurrently for the conspiracy charge. The other men had not yet indicated what their intentions were in regards to their pleas, but a date had been set for a trial to begin in October of 2019. However, on May 30th, Alan Wilson pleaded guilty to being involved in a plot to kill a named man on orders from people allegedly involved in organised crime in Dublin. Another of the accused had done the same the week before. The court heard that there were multiple taped conversations between the various men that had been gathered during surveillance in September of 2017. The men were recorded speaking about plans to carry out an assassination in return for money. Alan Wilson was handed down a six-year sentence for his part in the conspiracy, with the judges of the Special Criminal Court accepting his early guilty plea as mitigation, as well as the fact that he had thanks to his quashed conviction, no significant criminal record. The court commented, quote, The accused is arguably very fortunate that the limitations placed by statute on the sentencing powers of this court prevent the imposition that might be regarded as truly reflective of his criminality, as disclosed by the evidence in this case. Whether he makes good on his promise to desist on future associations with criminals remains to be seen. End quote. Though the file on Marioara Rasta's murder remains open, sources close to the investigation say they do not believe that anyone else will be charged in the case. According to the Irish Sun, Maxine Wilson, who seems to have been the first person to tell someone what had occurred to Marioara and may have at some stage relented and spoke to Gardee, has since died. 
Stephen Breen, the crime editor at the Irish Sun, along with Owen Conlon, published a book this year about Alan Wilson's family and their role within the wider gangland community in Ireland. The authors noted it was unusual for a person associated with gangland crime to be involved in something like what had been done to Mariuara. There was no payday at the end of that crime, with seemingly nothing to benefit them. And yet, all the evidence that Gardy had gathered had pointed towards people who were involved in organised crime in the city. The book The Hitmen, The Shocking True Story of a Family of Killers for Hire details the wider context of the Wilson family and the various crimes members of the family were involved with. Though the level of violence and callousness involved remains a constant between various assassinations of gangland figures and the murder of Mariuara, Mariuara's killing stands apart as something committed with little planning, committed seemingly for the purpose of inflicting pain and harm. It was partly due to the wider context of professional criminals that had led to the difficulties in bringing a case against the person Gardi thought was responsible for Mariuara's murder. The people interviewed by the Gardi, the ones with vital evidence, were adept at keeping information from the police and, as in the case of Fergus O'Hanlon, did not make a reliable witness when put on the stand. Justice was not delivered for Mariuara. Yet, Gardi said that the fact they were able to recover her body for the family brought some sort of solace. Alan Wilson will be eligible for release as early as June 2022. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Kira O'Sullivan, Stanley Brooks, Adam Brennan, Diane Tuhig, Catherine Barry, and Catherine Flanagan. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and everyone who continues to support the show. Don't forget, there is a discount when you sign up for an annual membership. And along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Manscaped and Beer52. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) 